Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest this week is Harry Alto. Harry and I are old friends. We've known each other for 15 or 20 years. I used to work for his company doing website development while I was actually on the clock. He and I would sit around and have long philosophical <laughs> discussions. <laughs> That's right. Uh, then for years we attended a weekly uh, satsang spiritual discussion group here in town which was not sort of based on one teacher but around everyone sort of participated in an equal manner. I've always been very impressed with Harry's level of experience and clarity of expression and since I started this show about four years ago I've wanted to have him on as a guest but he's a very private person and he hasn't wanted to be on as a guest and so you know every month or two I'll run into him in the grocery store and twist his arm a little bit and, you know and he said no don't want to do it so finally a couple of months ago I ran into him in the grocery store and twisted his arm as usual and after I got home I sent him an email entitled something like reasons why I keep bugging you and for some reason, I guess it was persuasive because you know, my arm was just getting very <laughs> sore okay, over the years. <laughs> and so finally, Harry consented to do an interview. He hasn't written a book. He's not a public satsang teacher or anything like that, which I think many listeners will find refreshing. I'm not qualified to judge anybody's level of consciousness or subjective experience or anything like that. But in my estimation, you know, having interviewed Take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Having interviewed a couple hundred people, I would say that Harry is more clear and articulate than any of them. And I don't mean any offense to any of the wonderful people I have interviewed, many of whom have become dear friends. But I'll leave you to judge that for yourselves as we get into the interview. You can see what you think. So I think I'd like to start by just letting you get to know Harry a little bit by bringing up some various recollections I have of conversations that we've had over the years, either in his office or going on a skiing trip or whatever together, and then let him fill in the gaps and, and say anything else that comes to mind as we go along. So one of the earliest things I remember in terms of the chronology of your life is, you know, you mentioned to me that at a very early age, age of four or something like that, you recall being self-realized. Of course, that was with a four-year-old's understanding, but with your adult understanding now, looking back, you feel that that was the nature of your experience, self-realized as it's commonly defined in terms that people would understand. Is that true? Yes. And, uh, well, first I'd like to thank you for having me on your show. I've been watching your interviews over the years, and I must say I find them intriguing. There's so many different kinds of people. And yes, you know, I suppose if I look back on my life, starting as, at an early age, as I grew up, you know, three, four, five years old, I had some kind of awareness. It was around me, it was in me, it was everywhere. And frankly, that hasn't changed. That's still there. It's the same consciousness. But what's changed is the, I know that this might come as a shock, but the details of that wholeness has, has changed. The, the understanding and the knowledge of that experience has changed. And, and of course, that's... Uh, made it expand, made the experience of realization, if we call it that, it's made it more fulfilling experience. And we're going to get into a lot of those details. Yeah. Of course, most people, if you were to talk, say to them, well, are you aware? They would say, of course I'm aware, you know, I'm talking to you, how, how could I not be aware? But most people, when they're growing up, or throughout their entire lives in most cases, feel that if, if you ask them who or what they are, they will say, well, I'm Rick Archer. 
yeah, but that's your name, so who are you really? Well, you know, I live in Fairfield, Iowa, and I have this job, and I have this wife, and I have dogs, and I, I like to do this, and I like to do that. And it's all descriptive of relative aspects of their lives. So when we say self-realized, we usually mean realization of something which is beyond individual characterizations or, or descriptions. Yes? You know, the interesting thing about this term self-realization, it's a goal. You know, everybody, I'm going to get realized, I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to have an experience, and it's going to be called self-realization. And most self-realized people don't talk about self-realization because that term ceases to have any meaning once you have the experience. It's gone. Self-realization is so natural, so normal, that it's kind of like I'm looking at the scene around this room and I don't have to tell you that's a couch, that's a wall, it's just there. Mm -hmm. It's a perception. Yeah. Self-realization is a perception that ultimately grows to include even the senses. So you never really went through a phase of life as most spiritual seekers did? Oh, now I did. Okay. Many phases, hundreds of phases, and, and the wonder of that is that, you know, I'd have, you know, all kinds of, let's call them flashy experiences over the years, hundreds, maybe thousands of them, and let's say there's a peak here and there's a trough here, mm -hmm. and I'd be just a normal human being, normal kid, normal teenager, no, all the ups and downs, but let's say the flashy experiences are going like this, going like this, they come and they go, and they go high and they go low, and over the years, I began to realize that there's a common denominator to all these experiences that doesn't change. And what's happened over the, particularly in the last few decades, the, the highs and the lows remained high and remained low, but they, they kind of went into one river of experience, mm -hmm. one wholeness of experience. Is that self-realization? <laughs> it's certainly something. <laughs> well, did you ever go through a phase where you had this yearning, craving, feeling like, you know, no. for the thing yes. called enlightenment and you didn't feel like you had it and you wanted to get it and all that stuff. That reminds me of an experience, okay? Mm -hmm. I was on a retreat. Long meditation. Long meditation group, many people, but we'd be in our rooms doing this and we'd have group meetings where we'd discuss um, experiences. And everybody talked about unboundedness and pure consciousness. You know, I was having all kinds of flashy stuff, celestial this or that, all kinds of stuff. And I said, what are they talking about, you know? You know, I'm not intellectual by nature. I know it might sound like I am, but I'm not. I have to have an experience before I can describe it. And I was walking outside from the retreat one day, just quietly walking, and suddenly something disappeared in my consciousness. Suddenly I felt horrible. Suddenly I felt terrible. Everything contracted that so-called abstract unboundedness disappeared. I didn't know it was there. It disappeared and what was left was this horror of smallness. I can't even describe it. I said, oh my God, I've, been, I've had this unboundedness my whole life. Where is it? Is it gone? <laughs> but gradually it came back, it came back, it came back. Over what? 10 minutes, minutes, 10, 15 yeah. minutes it came back and I said, okay, that's what I want all the time. Now all this other stuff, which is wonderful, and gives definition to consciousness, it comes and goes. Mm -hmm. But that ground state, that silence, now I'll define silence later, but that ground state of silence was always there. And, and, and that moment when it was gone, I realized, of course, I've always had that. So basically you just said, I was gonna restate it, but yeah. basically you're saying, you had that unboundedness all your life. You didn't recognize it. Like Joni Mitchell says, you don't know what we, we don't know what we've got till it's gone. So for 15 minutes, it was gone. 
and then it came back. It's an oversimplification, yeah. but yes, that's exactly right. It's kind of like the, you know, an old analogy I'm sure you've used. It's like this room. You know, there's, the, the room is empty space, but there's stuff in that empty space, oxygen and all the stuff you need to stay alive. Sun's coming through the window. You need all these things, but it's in, in this empty space. Yeah. You don't see it. And, and this empty space is defined by these walls. Mm -hmm. The empty space has no meaning without the walls. When I talk about the details of pure consciousness, that's what I mean. I mean, I mean that which gives validity to pure consciousness, like that. Okay, we'll get more into that. Okay. <laughs> let's, go, let's go back to your childhood. So one thing we've established then, just to summarize so far, is that pretty much throughout your entire life, you have been in a state which many people consider themselves to be aspiring to. It's a state of self-realization or whatever we want to call it. And that was kind of made more clear to you by having lost it for a little bit during your 20s, I suppose, and then regained it 15 minutes later. We should all be so lucky. <laughs> Another thing in your childhood is that I recall is that you, you had sort of a almost super normal physical abilities for a little while. You're not, you're not a big guy, but I remember you telling me that... I knew you'd bring this up. Just for, just for kicks, I mean, whatever, for what, for, for what it's worth. But you, you could, like, jump higher than other kids, and you also mentioned having, like, this explosive energy that you could barely contain. You'd have to, have to like, run around the block just to sort of burn some of it off. And when kids kind of realized that you had a little bit unusual capabilities, they would want to challenge them on the playground, you know, like tackle you or whatever, and you were able to flip all these bigger kids just with some kind of energy trick or something like that. Yeah. What was that all about? When consciousness is super clear, it affects the body as well. It's not limited to the mind. It's not limited to so-called consciousness. Consciousness is the body. And, and I guess if I look at that period, which lasted maybe 10 years from maybe eight to early adolescence, my body always felt like it was floating, it was light, it was totally still. People talk about the runner's high. It was like a permanent runner's high for a decade. But if, because it's, you're running, the physiology is involved. That would be the best way to describe it. And yes, I felt I could do anything physically, but I was a totally rambunctious, even dumb little kid running around the block like a crazy. I was enormously energetic. I was so energetic, my parents wouldn't want to take me to other people's houses who had kids because I'd, I'd be just too wild. <laughs> but I, I didn't view it that way. Hmm. You know, I just viewed it that this was a normal state that kids go through. I had a thought, but it'll come back to me later. Okay. Yeah. So another thing I remember is in these interviews, a lot of times I brought up the concept of witnessing sleep. And uh, that's sometimes misunderstood as some kind of insomnia or something, but really what it is is that pure consciousness, which is a continuum, which doesn't come and go, is so awake to itself that whether we're in the waking state, the dream state, or the sleep state, pure consciousness is awake to itself. Most people conk out when they sleep entirely, but you told me that, I don't know, around the age of 10, 11, 12, that experience became so vivid that it was as if when you went to sleep at night, you were waking up. And when you woke up in the morning, you were going to sleep. Want to elaborate on that one a little bit? Well, this term witnessing is generally in self-realization circles. If it's permanent and they're 24 hours a day, it's called self-realization, right? Mm -hmm. But remember that the witness state is unbounded. There's no parameters to it. So it's, it's subtle. It's delicate. It's, it's like 
even hard to recognize. If it's clear, it's not hard to recognize. But for most people, it's a universal phenomenon. It's there. So why don't you recognize it? It's always been a question I have when I talk to people. I say, well, you know, it's there. It's everywhere. Pure consciousness is everywhere. But the consciousness has to have enough liveliness to be awake to itself. It can't just be pure silence. Pure, that's not an experience. So there's some realization or self-awareness to the experience. And if it stays when you go to sleep, you can have many kinds of witnessing. It can be silent, it can be active. You can witness dreams, witness the body. And yes, I went through a phase that lasted many years where the nights would feel like that. And I closed my eyes and opened my eyes. That was the night. And other kinds of experiences there would be that, yes, I would feel like I was waking up when I fell asleep because the body was inactive, the pure consciousness was clearer. And then when I'd wake up, you know, the opposite of that would happen. But over the years, that witness or that consciousness, it's still there. It's, it's never gone anywhere. It can't go anywhere. There's nowhere for it to go. Understanding is integral to the experience of awakening, to self-realizing. Understanding is half the show, at least half the show. Underst I don't mean understanding on the quietest level. It's kind of self-understanding. Um, self-awareness. It's called self-awareness. Self-awareness is self-knowledge. There's a knowingness to pure consciousness, a knowingness to pure consciousness that knows itself as being awake. And at first that's so abstract for most people, including for me, is that what is it? What is this self-awareness? Self-knowingness. Sounds kind of abstract, but the self knows itself. Nothing else knows itself. And over time that self-awareness as if, in my case, woke up even more and more and more. And every time there was more self-awareness, the self-awareness as if contained more, more substance, more structure, more light, more, you could even say more celestial, more the quietest level of the mind became the most active level of the mind, but in a, in a very quiet kind of a way. You see, there's structure to consciousness and you begin to see that, or at least I did. And I think most people see something, they just refuse to acknowledge it. That's my opinion. You mean during sleep? Or all the time? All the time. Yeah. And but the thing about the sleep is that it could be seen as a kind of an acid test, you know, because a person can't... You can't make it up. You can't fake it. You can't fake it. Yeah. Right. And if you're just totally blotto during sleep, <laughs> then you can assume that consciousness hasn't woken up to maybe as significant okay. a degree as it would when awareness becomes a 24-7 continuum. That's right, and, and that's certainly in the early days of, of uh, self-realization, uh, pure consciousness at night is an acid test. Mm -hmm. Later on, the acid test is having that awareness when you're running around like a chicken, or you're at work, or you're doing whatever you're doing, but it's still there. Yeah. Is it more likely that running around like a chicken will overshadow <laughs> pure consciousness, or the, the inertia of sleep will overshadow Both. Which is the more overshadowing? Both. Both? Uh, yeah. Equal? More equal, yeah. Huh. I'd say equal. And as a matter of fact, later on in the game, uh, running around is wonderful because you see it bliss. in relation. Yeah, it stirs the bliss, and you see it in relation to uh, pure consciousness itself, and you begin to understand the uh, relationship between consciousness and the body, and the mind, and the senses, and even the environment, and even the universe ultimately. 
So just to belabor this point a slight bit more, you could say, I suppose, that you haven't lost consciousness in 60 years, 50 years or something. I suppose, yeah. yeah. You could say that. It's, there's been this like continuum of awareness regardless of waking, dreaming, sleeping. Certainly seems that way, yeah. yeah. Have you ever had surgery during that period? That's interesting. You know, I had an experience. I was in a hospital doing something with my tonsils. The uh -huh. doctors were there. I think they removed them, unfortunately. But I was in the hospital. They left me there overnight. I was kind of scared. You know, my parents left. I was in this huge hospital. So I was in this room. It was dark. And these people, there was this person down the hall that was yelling, I need water. I need water. Help, help. Making all kinds of noise. And uh, go on for hours. And nobody nobody come. I'd, and I'd finally yell, come and give that person some water. And a nurse came and said, would you please start yelling to stop me? Stop yelling? Yeah, stop yelling Oh, were to you the me. guy yelling? I was the guy that was yelling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the witness feels like that. The, yeah. the kid isn't doing anything or the, mm. there's, there's no activity taking place in relation to the pure consciousness. So an early stage of self-realization is that you're uninvolved. Yeah. That there's no involvement at all. And that would have been a dream. So you were on some kind of drugs from your tonsillectomy or Probably. anesthesia or something. But that kind of stage where you didn't appear to be active uh, in anything that the body was doing went on for a long time. It's interesting. Well, the reason I asked about the anesthesia was that my friend Francis Bennett, um, whom I've interviewed a few yeah. times, uh, you know, has this experience of witnessing 24-7 throughout the night and so on. But he had uh, some surgery on his foot, and he said it was so unusual because under anesthesia, he actually lost consciousness. And it was kind of a, although, you know, it's only been a few years since he's been having that witnessing experience, it was kind of a shock to him. And then it came back after he came out of the anesthesia. So I was just wondering if he's... Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. But. I'd like to just kind of summarize in a, in a kind of a nutshell how I experience consciousness and, and daily life and so. Sure. We're not jumping ahead of our story. This is all, it fits right in, eh? I hope so. Because <laughs> some of these historical things are interesting too. Like, okay. we'll, we'll, if you we'll, want to continue. No, you, no, you do your thing. We'll yeah. loop back. So there's, my experience is, and over the years, is that there, I have this and everybody has, and some people are aware of it, some people aren't. There's this consciousness or pure consciousness that has liveliness to it. Some people call it silence, some people call it the absolute, some people even call it God in mm -hmm. some religions. And this self-awareness or self-knowingness has a quiet aspect to it. But when, when I look into that quiet aspect, I see something there. And even at an early age, I saw liveliness, some kind, there was a wave function to it or self-knowingness and that self-knowingness had a wave function or some kind of function to it, some liveliness to it. Somebody was having the experience. I didn't know who for many, many years, who was having the experience, why that experience was taking, but it was there. So over the years, that self-awareness or that liveliness became clearer and clearer. And it's kind of like, seeing the details of this room, this empty space, suddenly you see the wall, you see this, you see, normally you don't see it, right? You look at that picture or that window, your mind tells you that's a window, you don't have to think about it. Your mind just, you just figure it out, you know it, it's a window. Consciousness is like that, the pure consciousness, you begin to see structure. And it's just like a perception. It can be described after you've seen it. it looks like this, there's a string going here, there's, you know, I was reminded of, um, Dr. Hagelin's super string theory, he talks about 
all these <laughs> strings and light and waves. So the structure of consciousness looks like that to me. Now, not going into details there, then you got this more silent level, then you have this structure level, and then, and there's a form level to that too. And I'm not going to get into it very much at this point, but consciousness is a continuum. And the subtle levels of consciousness, uh, the so-called, in all the, re all the religions talk about these subtle levels, there are the heavens of consciousness or the, or the uh, what, in Vedic terms, it's the devata of consciousness, or in Christian terms, it's the angels. That level of consciousness also exists. It's not, not existent. And there's a relationship between pure consciousness, the structure of consciousness, the divine levels of consciousness, and then the physiology. Somebody's having the experience. There's a body having that experience. And then that body's looking outside and looking inside. My experience is that outside isn't an outside at all. It's the other way around. Everything is inside. The outside is inside. And over time, that outside to inside experience became bigger and bigger and contained more and more. And as funny as it sounds, on an abstract level, even the universe is contained within that consciousness. That's kind of a... That doesn't sound funny at all. Okay. I think okay. most people hearing, listening to this will say, sure, well, if consciousness is infinite yeah. and unbounded, then yeah. obviously it contains the universe. Yes. And, you know, and other people have reported the experience that the whole universe seems to be contained within me. Everything's contained within me, me in the bigger sense of cosmic consciousness or unbounded awareness. Okay, just one point I'd like to mm -hmm. reemphasize is that to me, the whole thing is one big oneness, one big continuum. All these layers mm -hmm. define the, uh, the pure consciousness that exists as the jewel in that experience. Mm -hmm. And knowledge of all those different layers, and knowledge on the quietest level this is embedded in the experience on all levels, including moving through space and thinking and all the, they're all related to that knower. And that knower is a person, it's an individual. Yeah. Well, we can talk more about sure. that. But first of all, layers. <laughs> I sometimes get flack for using the word layers so much. Yeah, I know. Uh, because intellectually, if you think of oneness, it's yes. oneness. How can it have layers? You know, it, yes. if it's all the same stuff, I mean, you can sort of think of an ocean with deeper levels of the ocean, but it's really water. And where do you distinguish between this water and this water? It's all just well, the same Well, is the universe stuff. one universe? It's one universe, mm -hmm. but it's got all these planets and organisms and, and uh, constellations floating yeah, around. So it's one universe with galaxies with all these levels. Yeah. How else would you put it? I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I know I'm and, just trying and, to. Yeah, I, and, yeah, and physicists, for instance, they yeah. talk about levels all the time. There's there's the un, you know, unmanifest level of the unified field, and then there, are the, okay. the four forces, and then yeah. it, get, it gets more and more. Uh, diverse as it as it manifests. The way that it's come to me over the years is that the oneness is defined by the layers. You don't have the oneness without the experiencers having the experience of oneness, and that experience of oneness is defined by all the different phenomena that make that wholeness whole. In other words, a real crude analogy would be, let's say you know you have your eyes that look outside, mm -hmm. and then as you get an inner eye let's say there's a million eyes and they're all looking at something. What are they looking at? They're looking at wholeness. Same with ears. You hear these sounds and there's a million sounds and all of those sounds are, are defining and 
telling you oneness exists, this unity exists. In order to have a unity experience, you have to have this part, this part, this part, to say this is unified with this, this is unified with that. That's unity. Unity isn't just abstract nothingness. Unity is all the parts saying we are unified with you, I am unified with you. They're all shaking hands and saying hi to each other. They're saying uh, I am part and parcel of the oneness. And when I talk about layers, this layer is related to this layer, is related to this layer, and that communication between these layers, the celestial layers and the gross, so-called gross relative layers and the subtle, all of those layers, as if communicating together, are, are expressing or knowing that they're part of a togetherness, a continuity of oneness. You don't have oneness, you don't have this room without the walls. You don't have this emptiness without the walls. Yeah, so would that be a good analogy that you don't have the house without the wall and the pillar and the floor and the ceiling and all the parts that make the house, otherwise you have nothing. You have nothing. It sort of structures the totality of the house. If you take the house away, the space remains. Yeah, but, but you can't but, call it a house. But you can't call it a house, Right. that's it. So what you're saying is that all the parts that apparently make up creation uh, enable oneness to be actually a living cognition, a living experience, and without part, without there be, it would be a moot point. There'd be no nothing. Think of it. Think of a dark room. Mm -hmm. Let's say turn the rheostat way down, and you can't see anything. You're still in the room. You know you're in a room because it's cold outside and so forth. So you're in this room. It's dark. Start turning up the rheostat a little bit. Suddenly you see, you see out the window a tiny bit. You see this tiny bit. You see the pictures. You see the TV. Whatever you see, and you keep turning it up. Um, the process towards um, for realization is like that. It's a rheostat, and you see more and more of what constitutes the knower of the of the. Uh, I hate using the word silence because it's nearly always misconstrued in my mind. I do sense and know there's a silence in my consciousness, but, but the ultimate value of <coughs> silence, which is emptiness, isn't even an experience. There's somebody having the experience of silence. That's that somebody or that knowingness within the silence is something. And you turn up the rheostat, you see the structure of silence, and you see the subtle levels of silence, and ultimately you see even the, uh, your daily life and the universe as part and parcel of that consciousness that is being had by somebody. Turn it up. Well, so you're talking now about dynamism within the silence, or activi yeah, activity yeah. within the unmanifest, which is it's not... It's the activity that knows itself. Yeah, yes. yeah. It w and it, that's not, a, I would say, a clear experience to me, but it makes total sense, okay. because if consciousness is omnipresent, if there's really nothing other than consciousness, then what are we looking at? You know, we look at the couch and then you and the camera and all this stuff. We're looking at consciousness, but it's also dynamic. I mean, even on the gross level, there's so much going on. And on subtle levels, physics tells us that there's an incredible amount going on. You know, they say there's more energy on the on the level of the unmanifest in a cubic centimeter than there is in the entire expressed universe. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So there's this infinite dynamism, but it's not like some metaphysical abstract way down there kind of thing. We're actually experiencing it. In, to whatever extent we can. Um, yes. And, but I imagine what you're uh, alluding to with turning up the rheostat is that the extent to which we can yes. experience yes. is going to get 
more and more and more and more And everybody rich has the potential to have a rich and clear experience of consciousness in its full. Everybody has that right. capability. The human body has that capability. I've never felt in any way special. <laughs> you know, I'll bump into the wall just like everybody else and hurt my foot and as you know, as my wife, <laughs> you know. Um, do, no, I never get angry, right? <laughs> it's not like that, yeah. you know. All the ups and downs are there, but they're all on, on kind of a foundation of um, understanding and experience and clarity. But, you know, we're all individuals. It's the individual that's capable of having the experience of pure consciousness. It's always the individual. It's not some abstraction capable of having an experience. Now, some spiritual teachers seem, or people seem to emphasize that there is no individual. You ask them who they are, and they'll say, well, it's just this presence. And, yes. You know, it's just this, this is happening, and, uh, you know, just this arising. And, and they even try to change the vocabulary to point to that. They won't say, I did this. They'll say, well, for here it appears that, or it, was, it seems that. They leave the kind of the first-person pronoun out of their language. I was reminded of that when you, you said that yeah, there's an course, individual course, experiencing yes, things. Yes. So how do you reconcile that? I reconcile that by saying both are true. And if, if you're just running around the so-called gross relative, then you have half the show. If you're running around and convince yourself there's nothing but silence, there's nothing, there's no I, there's nothing, then you, you've got a glorious experience of nothingness. That's okay. But I say that the glory of the experience seen more fully that glorious quality is, is the knowingness. Let's say it's the first dawn of the knowingness of what actually consciousness is. And ultimately, the running around in the relative and the so-called all this changing universe, the subtle levels of consciousness and the silence level of consciousness, they're all one continuum. They maintain their integrity, in my experience, forever on their own level, on their relationship to the subtler levels, I know I'm getting into trouble over this, but I, in my experience, everything is eternal. Everything. Oh, yeah, you and I have had that debate. We'll, we'll have to do, we'll have to get <laughs> we'll into do that on like another session. The table session, is eternal. Hopefully. It's always no, going to well, be Let's uh, not get lit, <laughs> too silly. We can spend silly. the whole two hours on that. Let's not be too <laughs> silly. But I agree with the, you know, the so-called, you know, I'm just, I, I just love the fact that there are so many people uh, going towards silence or going towards God or going towards absolute everything. It doesn't matter to me. It's all real. It's yeah. all real. Mm -hmm. It's all good. Two thoughts come to mind, okay. and I'll, I'll utter them both in one sentence. But right. one is that you're never finished. There's no end to the unfoldment. And I've interviewed a number of people who disagree with me on that. You know, towards the end of the interview, I'll, and what do they say? Uh, well, I'll say, well, wh where do you see it going from here? You know, what's the next horizon? How how does it seem to be unfolding for you now? And they will say, and it'll scratch their heads. I say, I'm done. You know, what? There's no more. Mm -hmm. What could it be? Well, certainly it hasn't been my experience, and. I've gone through very dramatic, let's call them awakening experiences, right? And the next day I'd have another one. <laughs> and the next day after that I'd have another one. All right. I could never put my finger on so-called states of consciousness. You just went into that, you just went into that, you just went. It's one river of experience that's unfolding itself to itself. And it, it's not distracting, it's not boring, it's fulfilling, it's exciting. And when I listen to the people describe their states of awareness, or I read about, you know, for a thousand books, or I've stopped reading, but there's so many of them, all these states of awareness people describe, and they say it stops here. Well, 
I almost hate to say it, but I've had that state, and it didn't stay there, and I've had that state, and it didn't stay there. On a bigger level, evolution continues after the mind realizes itself, and not only does it continue, it accelerates, mm. or yeah. it should accelerate, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. But I will say, uh, there are definite states of consciousness, yeah. definite milestones that say, okay, now the mind is awake, this 24 hours, knowing that you're always awake is number one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember Peace Pilgrim, you remember Peace Pilgrim, that, that yes. lady who just like threw all caution in the yes. wind and walked around the United States yeah. for years with nothing but the shirt on her back. That's right. And uh, she had a little chart in her book, I remember it, where she had like the self-realization point. There was like this up and down going on and then self-realization and then after that there was this accelerating curve, kind of like the climate change hockey stick kind of a thing where there was just this continuing, ongoing, accelerated evolution with no end just happened to come to mind. I remember the second point that I was going to say, and, and it relates to something we were talking about just previously, which is that um, what I've found to be a helpful definition of enlightenment is a very all-inclusive one, where you don't say it's just this or just that, but it's an incorporation of all levels of creation within one's experience, and facility with functioning on all levels of experience and kind of a complete embracing of the paradox of life where it's not this or that it's both and and both and all the the paradoxical uh, levels and, and contrasts and, yeah. and and so are all contained within one larger wholeness or one totality how the, do you like that definition i like that another way of looking at it is okay so there's this very quiet almost silent level of consciousness and then there's all this other active level and it in my experience it's the relationship between those two that creates wholeness and you know I use that word wholeness kind of loosely but I call it uh, I would say that wholeness is an experience where even the I the big I the little I the non-existent I all are inclusive and and that experience of that activity of consciousness and the silence of activity creates this knowledge that encompasses everything and there is a state of consciousness after this witnessing experience that has a more celestial flavor has a more unity flavor and has a has a more holistic flavor they're all decided states or definite states of awareness that everybody will go through eventually it's not exclusive to anybody. You know, in a person's life, you know, you're a kid, you go to kindergarten, and then you, and you know everything, right? And then you go to grade one, and you look down at the kindergarten, and catch, they're just babies. I mean, they don't know anything. You just look at, look what I know, A, B, C, D. <laughs> I'm like that. Everybody's like that. Every, every experience you have, you feel you know everything. But I've been hammered with my life in terms, of, and, and I mean in a, in a nice way, every time I think I'm somewhere, I'm nowhere. I, I go to another point. And it's not something in, I have a kind of dramatic inner life in the sense that, okay, so I have this unified experience, right? And I say, okay, well, that's great. Uh, let's settle down, have a good life. Uh, you know, that's it. The next day, something shatters to a degree that unified state puts it into the background, doesn't make it go away, sticks it in the background and says, here's a new experience. What are you going to do with that? Mm. What are you going to do with that? So all these states remain. They don't go anywhere. All this stuff I had as a kid is there. All this stuff I had as a young adult is there. You're putting little jigsaw puzzles 
do, and every time you put 10 pieces together, you know, let's say you got the scene, you put 10 pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, you suddenly say, well, that's a house, that's great. And then, and then you start seeing some trees and, and, and the jigsaw puzzle, it's huge, it's trillions of pieces. So you're putting the whole universe together. There's this phrase from the Vedas, Brahman is the eater of everything. And when I hear that, I'm reminded of kind of like an amoeba who is always sort of engulfing some new little bit and digesting it, and then a new little bit. Kind of what reminds me of what you just described. There's this wholeness, and, and how can wholeness be any more complete? And yet there seems to be no end to the details of creation which can be revealed and, and engulfed within that wholeness. Well, consciousness is like, you know, if I look out that window, I can't see through that wall. There's something I don't know then. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's behind that wall out there. Mm. I don't know what it is. That's a lack of knowing. Consciousness is like that. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and clearer and clearer, but there's always an area beyond which you're not seeing. Mm -hmm. And if, if your area of consciousness, conscious clarity starts seeing all these layers and this and that, and you're seeing farther and farther within the self and the structure of consciousness, there's always an area out there that's bigger now that you don't see that's fuller now that you don't. So you, you've increased your ignorance as well as your enlightenment. I mean, it's a way of looking. Yeah. And of course, human nervous system has its limitations. Of course. It's not given the capacity of total omniscience. No, absolutely uh, not. You Otherwise, know. you'd be able to enlighten me. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> or vice versa. Or you can tell us where Malaysia Flight 370 That's is. That's right, which I can't. <laughs> right. That's right. Save those guys a lot of trouble yes, looking for it. That's exactly right. In fact, right. you would have known when it was going to crash or Absolutely. when the pilot went awry, Absolutely. whatever he did. There's limitation. But consciousness, or let's, let's kind of give it a more of a personality and, and speak in terms of God a little bit, because it's obvious from any close observation of nature that there's a, an incredible intelligence at work governing things, whether you look at a cell or anything. So what is that intelligence? And, and God is said to be omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all those things. Are those qualities of consciousness, or is there just some distinction between consciousness and what I've just described as God? And to what extent can the individual participate in God's omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence? It brings to mind when you talk about God, you know, and you asked me earlier, did, did I ever have a period where I really, you know, wanted something? And yeah, I went through a period, early adolescence, where I wanted to know God. I just needed to know God didn't have a clue what God was. I knew God was somehow related to this pure consciousness state, some, some abstract way. And I had this big longing, and one day I was praying, and I transcended, or I went to this really unbounded state. It was beautiful and all that, but it was very, very quiet. Well, is that God? I said, it can't be. <laughs> there's nothing there, or there's very little there. In a sense, that propelled me to look deeper and deeper into that. And I, I would say, if I had a great desire, it was to know, know God. Now, I'd say in the last 20 years or so, I've gone through experiences where I experience, uh, let's say, God. And God is the closest thing to everybody's heart. And you notice it's hard for me to even talk about it because it's, it's intimate. It's, it's not something you root out and show people. But to put it simply, human consciousness is capable of having an experience with God rather than as God, with God. Mm -hmm. So a, a communication from the heart and even from the mind and, and even from the body is possible for human consciousness to have with God. God remains there, but God sits in the heart as well too, both.
don't want God just out there. You don't want God just in here. Mm. You both. That's well, the best I can. Well, there's this sort of a classic debate between the Advaitins and the and the, the Vaishnavites. You know, the the devotees, yes. the Hare Krishna type yes, people, absolutely. about whether you totally merge with God and and just become one with that reality, or whether you maintain some separation in order for devotion to take place. And Shankara said the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. If unity is really unity, and oneness is really oneness, and, and one becomes established in that oneness, how can there be anything separate from it that one could, well, unless it's like what Shankara said, that you imagine a duality for the sake of devotion? Your camera has 50 parts. Yeah, but it, probably more than that. Yeah. Or a thousand parts. Yeah. And it, it does something mm -hmm. with those thousand parts. And it, what it does is it's a camera. Mm -hmm. That's what human consciousness is. It's the cosmic camera. It's got all these parts, all these layers, all these structure, but all those pieces create something bigger than all that. Mm -hmm. And that's the, you could call it the I or the knower or self-realization. Self-realization is an experience that is being had. It's being had, even if you say it's emptiness, somebody's having the experience mm -hmm. of emptiness. You wanna call it the little I or the no I, go ahead. That's okay with me, but you're having it. You're saying you have this experience called silence. That saying it is a knowingness. It's a fluctuation that knows itself. It's something within the silence. My opinion is that that keeps growing. So here, when you say human consciousness, you're distinguishing between human consciousness and a bat's consciousness or yes. a cow's consciousness or you know some lesser developed reflection of consciousness. And I'm sure you would agree that there's really only one consciousness, but you're referring to the instrument through which that consciousness is appreciated. And you're saying that human consciousness, sufficiently developed, can entertain or enjoy the, the kinds of knowledge of, that you're talking about. There are states of consciousness that, that can't be described mm -hmm. unless you're there. Because the words just don't do justice to it. No, it's because the listener's not there. Uh -huh. If the listener was there, you could use any words, mm -hmm. and they'd get it. You could describe it. You know, in, in the ancient, uh, what, Vedic tradition, there's states of consciousness way beyond what we're discussing. Mm -hmm. Would we know what they are? If, they were if we're not there, would we know? No. So you're it saying wouldn't make sense. So yeah. what I'm saying is this, what do you call it, this uh, confusion between oneness and everythingness, there isn't in confusion for me. They seem like inseparably whole, here, here. Why? How is that possible? All I can say is the parts make the whole. The mm -hmm. part, the pieces of consciousness, you know, how else can you say? The layers of consciousness, the liveliness of consciousness knows itself. That knowing itself is a kind of a knowledge state. Knowledge keeps growing. Knowledge keeps growing. Knowledge looks at looks at itself, as it were, and sees more wholeness, sees more absolute. I don't know any other way to put it. These are great questions, you know. Uh, it's nice great that we, answers. we tend to agree. <laughs> that always helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm fascinated by, I am actually fascinated. You've heard me over the years say, okay, you know, there's all these non-dualists and all. I'm actually fascinated by that. And, uh, and I recognize where they're at, and I have great respect for that. I've never experienced emptiness myself because maybe I'm ornery, but <laughs> you know. But so, soon as, soon so as the as word I, void has never really appealed to you or made, to, yeah, but resonated you, with your. Experience. I see the void, yeah, and immediately look into it, and 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 all this other uh, 
knowledge, knowingness, structure, doesn't eliminate the void, but is there also. Just as important, contained just as within the, the void is contained in it, just I, as much as it's contained in I the see. void. It's all and, one thing. But what I can't grasp is that there can be such an experience of nothing because that's simply not an experience. You know by the implication that there, there is this totally an unexpressed state. The implication of that is the knowingness, the knower. As soon as I put a knower in it, I put everything else in it as well, in my mind, in my consciousness, in my experience. Well, people go through stages. Yes, of and course. And just like you said with regard to your experience, in my opinion, everybody's at a stage, even if they think they're finished. But some people stay at stages for decades. They stay at a certain stage for decades. They keep saying the same thing over and over again. There is no person, you know, there's nothing you can do, and, and uh, you know, there's no choice. And since there is no person, there couldn't be reincarnation because that would imply there's a person to reincarnate. And they have certain sort of pat understandings and ways of expressing that just go on and on and on. So it would seem that, you know, like what you said earlier about uh, evolution really took off once the self is realized is not necessarily a universal experience. It can kind of plateau in some cases for a, a lifetime, perhaps. As long as the person who's having the experience of no self or emptiness is having a genuine experience where they, they, they haven't just decided they're there. It, it's, it's awfully easy to intellectually decide yeah. that the I'm there understanding for because, the you know, I say it's everywhere. How can I not be it? So I'm there. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. As long as a person's having that experience, the non-dual experience, and recognizes that they're having that experience, I think that's great. If it's the real experience, the real not, exp not just an yes, intellectual yes, concept. Yes, I think that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And excuse me for saying this, but in my life, that was kind of my first experience. Yeah, I've repeated this phrase ad nauseum during these interviews. <laughs> there is this old Tibetan proverb which says, you know, don't mistake understanding for realization. Don't mistake realization for liberation. And I, and I feel and have encountered that many people are running around with a concept of non-duality or whatever without actually living the experience of it, but they're mistaking it for that. And then there are also many people who have genuine, genuine realizations, very profound, abiding, they don't go away, and they mistake those as being ultimate or final or permanent, and yet there's going to be more. There's more than I've talked ever. In saying what we were just saying, I don't mean to be critical of people who, you know, are mistaken about their level of realization. It's not even mistaken in a sense, it's, it, it's where we are. Yeah. It's, it's really not a mistake if you're going through it, in a sense. So, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, it's all right. Yeah. But my mo so my, my, yeah. vo my motivation, and it's actually part of the purpose of this show, I believe, is that I think it would really help the spiritual culture to have a much clearer, de more detailed roadmap of possibilities, you know, of what the, the full range of possibilities for development of... You don't want to leave something for a future yeah, session. They'll, they'll, have, they'll have more to explore because yeah, okay. I think, as we've been saying, the range is unlimited. But I think the better we can understand what's possible, the, the sort of the less pitfalls there will be for people and you know, less tendency for them to assume they've arrived you know, when they haven't or whatever. And that's in their, it's everyone's best interest. It's not to sort of say... Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. So in relation to that, I've always said, and I've been my experience, that the growth of consciousness is an in inclusive process, not an exclusive or pushing out process. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yes, there's an aspect to the growth of consciousness where everybody, you go inside, inside, quiet, quiet, go into a retreat. Uh, and that process has tended over the years to make the so-called relative, the so-called physical life, you know, out there, Devaluate. not good, yeah. devalue it. What's it got to do with anything? Now, that's not been my experience. My experience has been that, um, is that inside, you go inside, inside, experiences consciousness, but it's like, a, it's like a light that illuminates not just the inside, but illuminates knowledge itself, and that consciousness eventually flows through the eyes and, and bring, you know, it doesn't bring it in, but it as if brings your normal life, your relative life, your even walking down the street, your relationships, your, your feelings, brings them into the fold, as it were, into the consciousness of wholeness, and includes it, not excludes it. And ultimately, and I'd say it's just happened in the, I have to say in the last 10 years, this whole sense, and not only sense, but experience that everything is included. Everything is included. Even the table is included in a sense because my eyes are functioning from within their their quietest sense and the way of looking at it is the eyes look inside and outside. You hear inside, outside, you touch inside, outside, simultaneously, a continuum. Even the senses are functioning like that. Or Does this relate to that phrase, lamp at the door? Yes. Okay. And yes, you can, very you much can so. elaborate on that. But when you yeah. say inside and outside, I mean, you hear outside. Okay, we hear birds, we hear stuff <laughs> outside all the time. When you say hear inside, I mean, what are people going to make of that? You hear your stomach gurgling, you know, hear your blood coursing through your ears. What do you mean by hearing inside or seeing inside or any of the senses? Let's talk about hearing for a second, because hearing is related to knowingness itself. You know, there's a, and we haven't talked about it yet, but I can hear consciousness humming. You know, everybody's heard this term, hum, mm -hmm. right? The hum of om. om, that whole hum. Well, there is a hum uh, to pure consciousness. That hum is the knowingness of the self. Mm -hmm. It's the subtlest value of hearing. It's the subtlest value of knowledge. Mm. Knowing this itself. Knowing, knowledge. That hum is not, now that isn't one hum. It has it, uh, various, it, reverb, various it frequencies. It has trillions of reverberations that make the wholeness of that hum. Mm. Those reverberations are the, it's consciousness functioning within itself, within yourself, within myself. So would you say that each of the five senses, yes. obviously it has its function in directing our attention yes, outwards to experience absolutely. things, but it also has, uh, can, can be followed inward, Yes. and with each of the senses there's a junction point at which it you know, ceases to become an individual sense as it meets the, the transcendent. It's a beautiful way of putting it, and that junction point disappears. Right, at, and, and it seems like according to the sense there should be a different type of experience as you hit that junction point where it merges into the into the transcendent. So I have another analogy here, you know, 20 people go to the Grand Canyon, right, and, and 20 people are at the Grand Canyon, it's awesome, wonderful, it's always been there for millions of years, will be there for millions of years, just thousands of feet. It's only deep. been there for 6,000 according to certain. Yeah, but okay, yeah. all right, all right, okay, so some people go there, you know, they're with their family, they're smoking, they're drinking, they're this, they're that, they're stressed, you know, their business isn't going well, you know, they look in the Grand Canyon, yeah, it's okay, let's go. Somebody else is there and looks down there and 
whoa, this is awesome, you know. It's free. You're really appreciating look, it. It's free. Nature gives it to you for nothing. You don't have to do anything. Consciousness is like that. And you look into the self, you see the vastness, the wholeness of it. This is uh, kind of going into another analogy, but let me just proceed for a moment here. Not, hope I don't confuse it, but you're looking at the sky, it's empty. And, but you see a bird or something, and suddenly that bird makes the vastness of the sky seem vast because you've got something to relate. Consciousness is like that. When you begin to see the details, the points or the structure of the details, even if you just get little glimmers, shows you the vastness of the ocean, the silent ocean, the almost silent mm -hmm. ocean. And ultimately, the vastly silent ocean reveals all of itself to you. Hmm. I don't know if these make a sense to you, but that's, I don't know how any other way to describe oh, it. It kind of does. I'm sure that it could be more clear for me, but through no fault of yours. You know, whenever I come in contact with somebody like, like yourself, uh -huh. and I, I talk to that person like I talk to you, I say, ah, is this guy fodder for me to give him something or some information or knowledge? And, and you're the perfect because you're open and you don't think you're anywhere, you know, any exalted state. I make no claims. You make no claims whatsoever. And we used to call you, what, the oozer? Oozer, right. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I always say, well, what can I say to this person so that he kind of gets it? Yeah. And, you know, I do have that in me. To the little degree that I like to be a teacher, that I have when I see something like mm -hmm. a person such as yourself. <laughs> I might have something to offer. Well, you have a lot to offer. And uh, I'll say this at the end of the interview, but I think yeah. uh, Harry and I are going to be doing a series. This won't be the first one or the last. Well, I hope I so. I mean, it is the first. It won't be the last. Because there's so much, I mean, we can talk about. Let me take it on this yeah. stack. I have a friend who has, like yourself, watched many of my interviews, almost all of them probably, and uh, she's very clear and articulate. And I actually had some really nice questions written down that she had sent me. And which you forgot it, them. I rushed out of the house and forgot to bring them with me. But I'll try to remember a couple of them because I okay. think they'll shed light on the whole conversation. She has a TM background, and she went through a lot of intense Kundalini stuff over yes. the years, and eventually, through the help of some teachers like Pamela Wilson and Neelam, whom you may not know, yeah. that all eventually smoothed out. And, smoothed out. And, you know, she's in a very well-established state. Right. Beyond my capacity to define it precisely or say okay. where she's okay. at. But, you know, she's, a good, she's in a good place, and she writes very clearly. Yes. And she, she also has fairly definite ideas about what constitutes enlightenment or awakening and so on. And I, I sent her one of your experiences, and I wish I had her question that she fired back, but she was a little skeptical because uh, she has the feeling that, for, first of all, if you're still doing a, a spiritual practice, if you still sit down a, a couple hours a day to meditate or something, you must not be there yet. You know, why would you do that? Because if you're already there, what more can you gain by sitting down and doing a practice? You have a body. You have a body. And it's aging. So it likes it. It slows it down and it, the body likes it. Slows the aging down, the body likes it. You get an experience of bliss. And closing the eyes is a different experience than keeping the eyes open. Mm -hmm. It's different. It's different. Pure consciousness reveals itself in a different way with eyes closed and eyes open. And when you open your eyes, that inner experience doesn't go away. When you close your eyes, you're not going inside. When you're awake, you're not going inside. There's a little bit of a misinterpretation in her knowledge of what constitutes consciousness. Just because your eyes are closed hasn't eliminated the material universe because it's all consciousness. So, of course, if something's good for the body or the senses, you do it. But in your own case, and I know you still meditate stuff, uh, you're not just doing it for your body, right? I mean, it has... I get experiences every time I close my eyes, just like every time I open my eyes. Okay, and she might say, 
yeah, you get experiences, but experiences by definition are fleeting, and so they're not really the ultimate thing. Of course, we've already talked about this a lot. Well, I'm honing the, the uh, let's call it the lens that looks at itself as whole. Mm -hmm. Every time an experience comes into consciousness that is of a significant nature or a subtle nature, I've taken a speck of dust off the screen. That's the way to look at it. Yeah. I can't look at it any other way. And, you know, I can, I can buy into to a certain degree that, that it's all natural, it's all happening, there's no path, there's no nothing. In a sense, it's all determined. I don't care if it's determined or not. I'm going to pretend it isn't. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Because when I put my attention, I don't care if I appear to put it or I actually put it, I don't care. Mm -hmm. When I put my attention on something like that subtle or of a consciousness nature, something unfolds. Yeah. Something nice that I like. So it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. And it's also a form of exploration. It's a form of exploration. A revealing of new sort of petals of knowledge. So if I want to go to New York, I don't sit here and think about New York. I get on a bicycle or a train or, or, or I get on an airplane mm -hmm. and go to New York. Yeah. I have to go there. Right. Consciousness to me is just like that. And I know some people won't like it, but you have to go there. Let's take somebody that everybody reveres as sort of the ultimate example of enlightenment, Ramana Maharshi. And I don't know how, how much you know about him. You probably, probably read a few books. Yeah, I've read a little bit. And, uh, so, but it doesn't have to be him. Somebody okay. that we might take as the epitome of enlightenment. Would you say that for somebody like that, there is still plenty of room for exploration, discovery, unfolding of the fine fabrics of knowledge, even though he is totally immersed and established in the totality of knowledge, the totality of consciousness, there's, there's so many little things within that totality that can be explored if one is so inclined. If one is so inclined. And, and maybe some aren't inclined, maybe it's just not their thing. And these world teachers, you know, they talk to the audience. Right. They're not like me. I just spill all the beans, can't help it. I'm not like that. They give you what you need and they limit what they tell you. Yeah. They all do. Ramana Maharishi would have done the same. He talked to his, and if he feels they're non-dualist, he'll talk non-dualist to them. And he knows what the experience is. He knows what it is. Or she knows what it is. I interviewed a guy a couple of weeks ago who had done a lot of Zen practice, and he said there's yeah. a saying in Zen that there's no love in Zen, <laughs> meaning that it just has this cold, clear realize the self, they don't even call it self, but realize the absolute orientation, but any consideration of devotion or, you know, all that sort of more flowery kind of thing is just not relevant in that tradition. So some, sometimes entire traditions... It's not relevant until you get to the point where you have the love that just sprung out out of those practices. Yeah, and then your tradition may no longer be relevant. I mean, Adi, be Adi relevant Shanti, for instance, yes, yes. you know, Zen background. Yes. These days, he's writing books about Jesus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. Obviously, there's a. It seems to me a more devotional uh, things uh, blossoming in him. Devotion is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience because it's heartfelt. Mm -hmm. Anything heartfelt is enjoyable, as long as it's not a mood. And then the realization from this devotion is more devotion, more love, more feeling. Feelings are great. Mm. The subtlest feeling 
is the feeling of enlightenment or self-realization. You know, I, I told Kathy, my wife, and I'm not going to use the word enlightenment or self-realization in this talk, but I've been doing nothing but. <laughs> <laughs> you have to use words. You have to use words. Can't call it just what? XYZ or whatever. Or abs absolute, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. got to use words. And I suppose the reason you wouldn't want to use those words is that they're used so commonly that yes. there could be a thousand understandings of them out there. And if you're trying to communicate something, you want to use words that actually convey the meaning you intend. But they're good words, as long as we define them for our purposes and say this is how we, we're using them. If a person such as myself, let, let's, let's make a graph. And let's say 100% is the highest level human being can go. and. 0% is the lowest level, or 1% is the lowest level. And let's say somebody like me is at 10%. So I got 90% to go, and I have a short life to do it in. Mm -hmm. That's how I look at it. And, and, and if some people are 8%, 7%, 6%, you know, that's kind of a cool way of looking at it, but the experience isn't cool. And having your mind open to further experience, whatever level you're on, whatever level you're on, facilitates the process. Yeah. I would think, and kind of being convinced that there could, there's not, no uh, horizon yet to explore, would, st would stymie it, it would seem to me. And most teachers and gurus, they have followers. They have to talk as if they're finished. finished. Yeah. Now, if you look at the great gurus and the great teachers, you know, when they were young, they talked one way, middle life, they talked another way, and then when they were old, they talked another way. Yeah. Because they knew more. Yeah. I would. And their followers also grew. Yep. Yeah, and it's not just like they were getting their terminology worked out better. It's that their actual experience was their growing. Their actual experience grew. Yeah. yeah. But they don't talk about that because so-called teacher's experience is finished. <laughs> That's right. the nature of a movement. Yeah. So you said a few minutes ago that world teachers tend to parcel out their knowledge according to who's listening. You just spill the beans. So let's see how many beans I can get you to spill. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you and I were taking a walk one time on a trail in Fairfield, and I asked you to describe your experience. And you described this beautiful experience, which I can repeat for you if you want. Go ahead. Okay. You said, well, you can clarify if I get it a little garbled. Sure. But you said something like, well, you know, I see all the levels of creation. I see the devas, the gods, the, the impulses of intelligence that govern the creation. I see millions of souls coming in and out of me. <laughs> You are one. You are smelling the beans, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, beans galore. And uh, I said, oh, wow. I said, is that during meditation? And you said, no, right now, as we're walking down this trail. So if you would, clarify what I just said and talk about what your experience is right now, not just talking to me and the obvious stuff here in this room, but the whole totality of it. I don't consider myself an intellectual or a particularly bright. I consider myself an observer. All I can talk about is what I'm seeing at the, at the time that my mouth is moving. <laughs> <laughs> right. Whatever's coming out is what I'm experiencing. I don't have the brains to make stuff up. I'm mm -hmm. not like that. I haven't had to be like that either. I've always had enough. Now, to me, the definition of self-realization is that the exp all experience, any experience, is always there. If you have knowledge, it's there all the time. Not even at will, it's just there. Mm -hmm. This room didn't go anywhere because I'm sitting in it. It's there. All the details of the room are here, the wall. Duh, duh. That's what consciousness is like. If you're seeing the celestial levels of creation, they're always there. They're not in another universe out there somewhere. Yeah, if you're seeing them, you're, you're seeing, seeing them, them here. If you're seeing them, 
then, then they're always there. If, if knowledge itself is full and it's or as full as it can be, it's always there. So you're saying that they're there whether or not you see them. So if there's a celestial level of creation, whatever. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying oh. they're there on a visual level. I know, but for the average person, let's say, yeah. we'll define more carefully what we mean by celestial the, level of creation. Okay. But if, if, if such exists, then it is there, like anything else, whether or not you experience whether it. Whether you're experiencing yeah. it or not. Bacteria were there before they developed microscopes and so on. Let's clarify a, just a little bit of that, what you described, you know. Looking at those so-called celestial levels, that's where what? What's another word for the laws of nature? You know, the elements. Impulses of, of intelligence. In, impulses of intelligence. like Organizing air. principles. You know, you, you know, sunlight is growing the plants, you're eating the plants, there's air. All these elements of nature are forming your body, but they also contribute to your consciousness. They're part of your consciousness. So these elements of nature, how to put this, these laws of nature have uh, administrators. I call that, and you know, there's movement in the Christian tradition. There's an entire hierarchy of archangels and all this stuff, which is hardly ever talked about in modern Christianity, but there's tons of them, and there's a huge hierarchy of it from God all the way down. Mm -hmm. And in the Vedic tradition, there's the same, and, and Buddhist, all of them have this hierarchy of deities administrate, and they talk about administrating these uh, laws of nature fire, air, water, etc., <clears throat> earth, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what I mean by the, the devas, or the, devas gods. or the gods, or the subtle, and they exist in these heavens that coexist along with uh, this uh, material universe. They coexist, they're always there, they're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Light's coming from the sun, and it's coming in a certain way, air, oxygen, they're all there, and they function on a material level, they function on a subtle level, and they function on an absolute level. They mm -hmm. function on an mm -hmm. absolute level. That's the one that's hard to describe to people. How can it function on a level that doesn't do anything? The reason it doesn't do anything is because everything is watching it do nothing, as it were. And that two wholenesses, let's say, two absolutes, three absolutes, four absolutes. Now, that's a state of consciousness. It cannot be to, told to somebody unless that's what they actually uh, at least intuit mm -hmm. and possibly see with the senses. Well, that thing about functioning in the absolute, I mean, you know the verse, Richo Akshare Parame Vyoman, the impulses of the Veda, the impulses of intelligence, which are responsible for the manifestation and government, governance of the entire universe, reside in the transcendental Akasha. They, they reside in, in this absolute field. And uh, then it goes on, he who does not know that, what can these impulses do for him? So knowledge of them begins to do something for you, right? And this word transcendental has always been interesting to me because Something is transcendental only up until you have the experience, and it ceases to be transcendental. Yeah. Transcendental means beyond. beyond right. But soon the word no longer has apply, applies once you see what that is. So at some point they reside in you. These mm -hmm. impulses of intelligence or creative intelligence reside in you. And if you begin to see them, intuit them first, maybe hear them second, maybe see them third, mm -hmm. like that. Then, then they exist as your consciousness. I, I'd like to just emphasize that my experience has always been that we're filling the basket, we're not emptying the basket. But certainly part of the journey towards realization can involve emptying the basket. What do you mean by that metaphor? Consciousness becomes more and more inclusive, but let's say your life is overshadowed by the relative or you've got so many worries, you, well then you've got to empty those out. Uh -huh, all right. 
That's what I mean. So yeah. that's why you close the eyes. That's why you meditate. That's why even so-called awake people close their eyes. So it was said that the Buddha meditated all of his life after his realization. You know, he just kept doing. You actually feel like meditating more, not less. Huh. Yeah, because it's so sumptuous. It's sumptuous. Yeah. yeah, there's more there. I wrote an introduction to a book which is going to be published in a few months by a ama devotee who lives in India and. Uh, and I kind of started out by saying that I've got good news and bad news. <laughs> the bad news is, you know, honeybees are dying as part of the sixth great extinction and Fukushima. And I, I kind of outlined all these Global problems. Global warming. Yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> and I said, the good news is that there is a spiritual awakening taking place all over the world. And then, and then I kind of went into explain how a spiritual awakening could actually be the remedy to those problems. Obviously, all these problems are symptomatic of kind of smallness of intelligence, insufficient intelligence, insufficient comprehension. And if we could expand our intelligence and comprehension to the level of that intelligence which governs the universe, mm -hmm. and if enough of us could, be, could do this, then that sort of error-free type of intelligence... Even one person would be enough. <laughs> Maybe. I think it might be helpful if we had... Oh, that'd be very helpful. It could be dozens, hundreds, thousands. Yeah. Yes, of course. Because then that, that level of intelligence, which governs the universe without effort or error, yes. Yes. could be yes. governing our society and helping to de develop our technologies and so on. And so all these problems which seem like they're going to do us all in within the next few decades could de be diffused and eliminated. I certainly don't have that feeling that anything's going to get diffused or apocalypse is going to come. I have the opposite feeling. The things are going to get better. Better. N not just get better, they are getting better. And I know uh, there's a war going on here, there's a war going on there, but you look at the consciousness of the people from when we were kids to now, everybody's far more open to spiritual values than they sure. were. We grew up in the 50s, you know. In the 50s? <laughs> as a stone age, yeah. right? Cold War, all this stuff. I would even go so far as to say that this so-called negative stuff is giving a spur to this positive stuff. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, pours a vacuum. kind of pushing it forward to get bigger and bigger. And yeah. do I believe everybody's going to suddenly wake up? No, but I think great quantities or numbers of people will. Mm. That's my feeling. Let's get back to the celestial thing. We threw the word out, talked about it a little bit. I could give a definition, but why don't you define what is meant by the word celestial? The celestial level of consciousness is one of the layers of human consciousness that can be experienced and can be known and the senses can function there. And it's one of the layers. You've got the absolute layer, you've got the knowledge layer, you've got the celestial layer, and you have the so-called gross relative layer. The celestial layer is one of those intermediate layers, subtler than the gross relative, grosser than the yeah, absolute, absolutely. if you want to put those kind of qualities on them. and. In my consciousness, they all maintain their presence all of the time. And the way you can know that is ask me a question about any of them at any time, even if I'm not liking you at the moment, I'll be able to answer the question. And, and the reason you can answer the question because that experience is lively in consciousness. And the celestial levels are particularly fascinating because there's a lot of sight there. Yeah, there's a lot going on. A lot going on. And those divine levels of consciousness, their sole purpose is to unify and administrate and propagate the laws of nature. And I'm not going to get into this very deeply because there's an, another session we're going to have is we're going to talk about how pure consciousness becomes celestial consciousness, how celestial consciousness becomes 
physical consciousness. That's a whole other session. But it's, it's a process. Part of self-realization, ultimate self-realization, is seeing this process, being this process, knowing this process. But I'm not going to go much deeper than that. That's okay. Yeah. And you answered it kind of in terms of human consciousness yeah. again, but obviously human consciousness is just a filter through which yes. the creation itself is experienced. That's right. And yes. Uh, yes. creation is appreciated or not to, yes. to the extent yes. to which that filter is yes. clear. Perfect. So when we talk of a celestial, the celestial, there's not only a celestial level of consciousness, in other words, a level at which one can appreciate from a celestial perspective, but the, the physical creation itself has a celestial level. It so does. if you look at the pillar or the rock or whatever, Every, you can perceive or appreciate the celestial level of that. Even on the material level, yeah. yes, yes, that's and, right. And by celestial, right. we just mean more, more subtle. More subtle, that's all we yeah. mean, yes, yes. And the interesting thing about it, I think, and you know, and again, just to step back, the okay. reason I even talk about this it's or bring okay. this up is, you know, I go to these conferences like the non-duality, yeah, science yeah. non-duality <laughs> conference, well, and it's a lot of fun and very interesting. But people have this, this sort of the concept of non-duality is just kind of more the, the absolute. That's non-dual. But what about the relative? And what about incorporating all the levels of the relative into a larger sort of non-duality that's really non-dual, not just sort of half, half the picture? And if you start doing that and thinking about that and experiencing that, then inevitably, and maybe this is kind of in the future for every spiritual aspirant, there's going to be a revelation, a discovery that the world has this all these subtle strata to it and those strata are populated you know profusely with beings every bit as real as you and I who have their own individual consciousness their own purpose their own function their own nervous system all that stuff I think that's valid realm for exploration and understanding that's another area we can get into not too deeply today but how does the absolute or pure consciousness, when you use the word pure, how does it manage, if it's pure consciousness or absolute, how does it manage to have these layers and still remain pure consciousness? And there's an answer to that and there's an experience to that is that <laughs> the non-dual state replicates itself on every level. I am one, may I be many? And I, I'm non-dual here and yet I'm still changing. I'm non-dual here and yet I'm non-changing. And that's the experience of the absolute when it's fuller. I used to see the absolute as one amalgamous mass of energy or knowingness, nothing much there. And now, because you said I used to experience that, but now? It's full of stuff, always full of stuff, always empty, always full, always empty, always full. Relationship between the two is the experience of me, I. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer in the little I. Mm -hmm. The little eye is the big eye. The big eye is the little eye. The eye exists, and I'm going to hold on to that. That's what makes me eternal. It's not the abstraction that makes me eternal, or you eternal, or anybody else. Every major religion talks about you can be eternal. They don't mean you can be nothing. Yeah, so they're not just saying the nothingness is eternal. They're saying the individual expression is also you eternal. You can be like God. Like. Eternal. Eternal. Can be, or will be, or are all those. I mean, you can't opt out of it, right? You can't opt out of it. You can't <laughs> opt out of eternity, yes. You can like, be unaware of it as long as yes. you like, but you can't opt yeah, out yes. of it. What were you saying? The individuality, the I, hanging on to that. Okay. It, it maintains uh, yes. some integrity regardless of how cosmic you get. Can I say that my experience of individuality is the same as it was when I was 20? 
do I understand what individuality is on the cosmic scale, on the divine scale, and on the absolute scale? Yes, I do know what that is. And, and do I call it an individual? Yes, I call it a cosmic individual, a divine individual, and I call it an absolute individual. So the individuality that we ordinarily think of ourselves to be and see others as being is just like the tip of the iceberg. And there's, the there's iceberg. all these levels of individuality which go deeper and deeper down to the absolute. If there's an absolute, and you exist as a physical body, and I exist as a, and this couch exists, then the absolute is everywhere, everywhere. If it's absolute, it's everywhere. It's omniscient, omnipresent, and, but yet this couch is here. Is this couch an illusion? Not to me. It's part of the omnipresence of the absolute. This couch is, you are, I am. It's better to talk about human beings that way than couches, but nevertheless. <laughs> well, is there also a sense in which this couch is not here at the same time? There's a level at which there's no couch. Of course, because there was a time it wasn't here. Right, and even now, isn't there a time when it's not here? Well, since if, time, if you, if you compress to time to the now experience, which is another way of describing realization, the couch is here and not here. Right. Yes, the couch is absolute and not absolute. The couch is a couch and has all the knowledge of what makes a couch. You can sit on it and it has all the knowledge of non-existence. Both, 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 both. And something bigger than both, I'm going to get into trouble over this one. With whom? Something big, with, with the universe. With the bat gap police. Yes, yeah, the bat, that's it, that's it, you got it. Um, there you go. That something that's bigger than the absolute that doesn't function and that absolute that functions in all ways is the individual self, individual self, individual self. Now, individual is the silence, the individual is the, all the activity. Ultimately, you, you experience it because, next time I'll talk about that, but yes, the individual, and I'm using the word individual deliberately. I'm using the word individual in the unified state, not in the state that you normally talk about the individual who's running around self-absorbed, small self-absorbed in the world. I'm talking about the individual in, in a state called unity. He's still an individual, he's still running around. That's, That's another topic. Yeah. P.T. Barnum said, always leave him wanting more. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure we could get into that and spend another hour on it. But you know, there's, there's a lot of nuggets in this interview, I think, which we could turn into entire interviews. And I intend to do that. Some people are going to scream and say, you haven't interviewed me yet. What are you doing this alto guy so many times for? But I really think this deserves you know, follow-ups. Okay. And we'll probably do the next one in June and maybe also That's even, fine, even whenever you want. Something I, in May. I'm actually enjoying it. Yeah, I, I thought what I wouldn't. I thought I wouldn't. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you typed out some questions that yeah, you I thought did. I might want to ask. And, and apologies again to my friend uh, who's, who had some really good questions. I haven't done justice to him. We'll bring him up in the okay. ne next one. All maybe right. she'll have some more okay. for then. All right. Here's one I don't think we've covered. What is the relation of bliss or love to pure awareness? Okay, so I have an experience that I'd like to relate there to. I must be the densest human being on the face of the earth. So here it is, you know, I've had all this bliss most of my life, happiness, uh, intense happiness. This, all, you know, I told you about these experiences as a kid. I have to go run around the block to get rid, tone it down. And all this, and here again I was on one of these retreats years ago, and people were talking about bliss. I'm in this room having all this stuff, you know, <laughs> God that and universe that and all, and I'm describing them and it's permanent and it's never and they talk about bliss. What the heck is bliss? I don't know what bliss is. And I'm sitting in my room and I'm intensely happy. I'm 
tears running down my head. My hair must have been when I had more hair. Standing up on end, intense bliss, and yes. suddenly dawned on me, is this what they're talking about? Is this what they're talking about? <laughs> I've had it for years, years and years, all my life. But I'm making this point is that all these things like knowledge bliss, even if as, as unboundedly dramatic they might be, you may not even know what they are. And if they're just quiet, you'd probably just ignore them and say they're not even there. Even in my case, and I'd go to the group and I'd describe it and they'd all look at me as if I'm a dum-dum and I'd say, is this what you're talking about? Yes, yes, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Well, you know, a lot of people when they wake up, they, they think, wait a minute, I've always known this, you know? Yeah. I've always had this. How, how did I miss it? It's, it's so obvious. And Maybe that's a slightly different thing. No, it's, it's a similar point that I'm making, yeah. is that to me the awakened state is an, is an ongoing awakening. Yeah. Ongoing awakening. So you can't get very egotistical about it or very bloated up about it if it's the real experience because all it does is it shine the light on a huge area that you can't see. Mm shine the light. <laughs> we know the thing about bliss, our friend Francis Bennett, um, he told me he'd, he's been getting some flack from people on Facebook because he's talking about bliss a lot and people think that that is just sort of a, a divergence or a, uh, uh, that a sidetrack like you know it's it's really all about the absolute, the self, pure awareness. You know, what, why are you complicating it with emotional experiences or some, something that's going to come and go? You know, it's, it's a consequence of, awakened, of an awakened mind. You get, you get something from the awakened mind. And one of the qualities you get, which is the nicest quality, is bliss, is happiness. Yeah, there's a, there's a line in the Upanishads which says something like, the enlightened person extracts nectar from every particle of creation. And, and next next session or the session after that we can talk about what that is how how that functions because it's part of the process how pure consciousness becomes subjective and objective consciousness is a flow to it I can describe the mechanics of how that happens bliss is one of those consequences in the Eastern um, philosophy it's called Soma mm -hmm. and there's other names for it too I'm yeah. sure well, Ananda for bliss. Ananda, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Soma gets us into the physiological but, Yeah, but it's of, very interesting yeah. because if you, if you can describe that process, it makes it more real. Mm -hmm. It's not just, hey, he's just saying he's, have, he's blissful. Yeah, now we can get into that in another yeah. interview. Yeah, talking. yeah. Because there is a, in the Eastern understanding of things, there is a, a, an actual physical substance oh, called, yeah. called Soma, which yes. is not only derivable from the Soma plant, but which is actually produced in our nervous systems when the Just by meditating, is, even. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. Or when we eat certain foods, yes. Yeah, if, yes. if the digestion is really stress-free in the nervous system and so on. Well, related to bliss, here's a question you want me to ask you this. Do you experience heaven? Details, Oh, God, I thought, we, I thought we covered that one. <laughs> have we? <laughs> sort of. I'll, I'll talk more about it if, 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 if you'll have If you feel again. there's anything else yeah. you want to say right now, but otherwise we'll, we'll talk more about heaven can wait, you know? Well, I can make one point, and that point is that here again, you know, way in the past, I would have always thought, you know, heaven and God sitting up there. Up there, up there. Yeah. Well, it's not like that. It's, right. We cohabit the same, same space. Yeah. We cohabit the same space. We're it's so related. dimensions of and, the same and, things. And, and I'll talk about those levels more like family in, my, in our next sessions, more like what, what those levels really are. Okay. They're more like family. Good. Okay. And you and I will both listen to this interview and take notes of things yes, we, we want will. to make sure yes. we promise yes. to cover. Yes. 
Okay, here's, here's one that's a little, maybe we haven't covered. At least you can add a little more spin to it. Are, are subtle levels or divine experiences random, or can one experience a divine purpose? The more subtle consciousness gets, the more purpose there is. The more, and the purpose I'm defining is something, let's call it positive. The purpose of existence is the expansion of um, happiness, knowledge, all these things you want. Nobody wants stress. You don't go after stress. You don't go after negative things. You go after more and more. And yes, these more divine levels are more blissful, more progressive. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, when we speak of divine purpose, a lot of people say everything happens for a reason. You know, that the, sort of the, the universe is being orchestrated by an infinitely wise intelligence and nothing is random and nothing, there's no such thing as an accident and so on and they also speak in terms of a force of evolution which is kind of the ultimate driving force of creation that it, even though it might not seem like everybody is moving in an evolutionary direction um, in the, if you zoom out enough and look at the, a big enough picture everybody is evolving even if they're having horrific experiences it's what they need in order to continue on their particular path yes. and so, so I mean do you kind of experience and I understand that intellectually and talk about it a lot but do you sort of is that a visceral experience for you that you can sort of see the evolutionary force or purpose behind or within everything uh, motivating it? Can we get more than a head nod? <laughs> <laughs> um, it feels like both to me. It feels like I'm central to the process of not only my evolution but a bigger evolution. But it also feels like it's happening automatically. But it's more like you're having a good day, you know, let's say. The sun is shining, you're happy. You don't think about your body, you don't think about your senses, you don't even think about the sunlight. You're just happy. It's a good day. That's what that whole process feels like to me, a good day. But this good day permeates relative life, divine life, and absolute life, mm. like that. I don't see anything but in the past, you know, I have sat in on meetings once in a while, and people get so mad at me because I'm so blinking positive. <laughs> they just they just go, you're full of, mm, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> You've been there once in a while. and But when I'm talking about this stuff, that's all that comes out. Yeah. Well, let's say uh, you watch the news probably. And, yeah, uh, I, every day. Terrible things happen. It's horrible. Let's say Syria, you know, it's a mess. Yeah, uh, it's a, a yeah. couple hundred thousand people have died. Children are starving. I mean, when you look at a situation like that, how do you kind of perceive it and reconcile it with the notion of a kind of a divine God, uh, you know, God who ultimately has everyone's best. Well, let's uh, look at it slightly mind. different. Mm -hmm. What would happen if, the, if nothing decayed or aged? Let's right. put it that way. We wouldn't have a relative. We wouldn't have a life. Right. And I'm not saying it's good or bad right now. I'm right. just putting it that way. People lived forever, mm -hmm. physically on Earth. There'd be a trillion people here. Everything would implode. It's over. They'd life life as we know it, we'd have to give up coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my short answer. Yeah, so, so you're just saying that polarities are part of the way the creation seems to be set up. If you got a hot, you have to have a cold. If you have, you know, happy, you have yeah, to have sad. I can also describe that at some point, the mechanics of how subtle levels of nature function, both negative and positive, but not now. Okay, and obviously there's all kinds of... Um, not mythological, but just sort of, you know, stories in all the traditions of the gods and, totally. the, and the demons fighting always, it out all the time. Always. That's all representative of some deeper mechanics. Like yes. That. Yeah. Yes. Okay. 
I don't know if you've covered this one or not. How are the intellect, heart, and mind connected to these experiences you describe? Okay, so the, the self-realization process involves the intellect and the heart and the mind. Now, the heart, in my opinion, is the, is the beneficiary of the awakened state. That's where the bliss comes in. And that's where the love comes in. Even a person born in Finland like me, who is, you know, considered by many to be kind of a little bit cool, the heart has exploded tenfold, and I, I keep it hidden. You know, in business, I'm, I am you in business. You don't hugging people in business. I, I don't hug anybody ever. <laughs> <laughs> people think I'm strange, and I, I think. And bliss is a quiet experience too. It's, it's, you know, there, what's that saying? Bliss is not blissful. It's yeah. not that it isn't there. It's not it's, blatant. It's, it's not blatant. It's yeah. not overt. Subtle. Yes, so that's part of the self-realization experience. The intellect, on the other hand, has to know, has to, has to be part of the experience of self-knowingness. The intellect says yes. It doesn't say I'm not. No, no. It says yes, yes, yes. The heart says, oh, I feel this bliss, yes. And what was the other one? Intellect, heart, mind. Intellect and mind. Yeah. I'll call them the same. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, these are just different faculties, and, yes. and they serve different functions, and they have a certain typical style of functioning in the unawakened state. And, and they wake up a more in the awakened state. Yeah, and they, they're discovered to have yes. even a, a more interesting yes. function yes. in the awakened state. Yes. That the yes. heart yes. begins experiencing yes. degrees yes. of bliss we yes. hadn't yes. known were yes. possible, and the yes. intellect has degrees of insight knowledge and discrimination and, and knowledge and so on that we hadn't known were possible. And they they start the unification process. Mm. That's when it starts. Yeah. Enlightenment or uh, evolution starts after awakening more than before. Right. Okay. Well, I think we kind of covered the notion that... Well, I've never seen you at loss for words before. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I want to see if I'm getting to your questions. I, oh, I could dream up my own questions still, but I want to do some of yours here. But, um, you know, we sort of covered the bit about, you know, there's no path. One thing would be my friend who said, you know, once you're enlightened, there's no need to do any practice. But there are plenty of people who even say that prior to any sort of enlightenment. You know, they just feel like a practice is only going to reinforce the notion of a practicer, someone who is doing something, and so therefore practices are counterproductive and ill-advised. I, I know that hasn't been your experience or path. Well, but. I can see why you'd say that, because you do discover that you've been home all the time anyway. Yeah. Um, you just didn't realize how big your home is. Yeah. You didn't realize how divine it is. You didn't realize how absolute it is. You did not realize that. Yes, you're home. I just thought of another th thing you told me years ago, which is kind of interesting. It's a little bit of a change of pace from what okay. we're talking about. You're talking about how you were on a uh, course one time. I think it was a six-month-long meditation course in Switzerland. And you were meditating in your room for long hours. And you went through this series of the chakras awakening with almost a literal bang as each one awoke. Would you, would you kind of recount that experience? I just think people find it interesting to hear. I wasn't meditating. I was just had my eyes closed. I was sitting on the bed. I was just thinking, if I ever came close to pure, unbounded silence, this was this moment that start, started to happen. Just like It was like a drumbeat of nothingness. It was just yeah. a big echo of silence started. And then there was this little trickle at the base of my spine. So, what's this? You know, I'm looking around. <laughs> what's this? The first time it happened, it was a little bit of a shock. And then this feeling, this spinning moved up my spine. And then suddenly there was a huge, like it's like a hammer blow to the base, but it was blissful. 
It wasn't painful. Right. And, and then suddenly my consciousness expanded out in, in terms of light and up my spine and hit another area and there was another bang. And this bang revealed stuff, cosmic stuff. And it was blissful, it was joyous, this echoing silence was there, and then it went all the way up my spine and got more and more, how it could get more intense, I don't know, but it did. Went up my spine, it hit at least six or seven points, then it went into my head and became this, well, you asked for this, this kind of cosmic ocean of light, and then it exploded out of the top of my head. And uh, I don't know why I'm saying this, maybe I should. Because I asked you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it felt like all these layers of creation were revealed to me. They were part of the physiology. They were hammer blows at it. They were incredibly blissful. They were heavens at every layer. And then there was this huge, white, glorious explosion in my head. And then the whole thing just sort of collapsed. And there was this pure silence or this pure reverberation left. And the funny thing is, I do it the next day, exactly the same thing happened. Okay, here it starts again. Same thing, only more intense. And then the third day, the same thing happened again. And whatever was the remnant of that experience remained. It's mm -hmm. always there. It's there right this minute. Mm -hmm. And memory is something we should talk about next time because okay. memory is very important. Mm -hmm. It's all memory. We'll do it. Great. Let's not end up on that note. Let's do something more practical. <laughs> sure, you want to talk about um, water jet fabrication? <laughs> <laughs> Business? <laughs> yeah, right. How is the human body important in the spiritual path? Well, you know, the same objection people might have or listeners might have to the body that they have to the individual. The individual has a body and the body is an individual. And the body is infinitely more complex and important to the process of awakening that than is generally thought. That's my opinion. It's a vehicle, I, isn't it's it? A, I'd say it's far more than a vehicle. It's the actual experience on the subtle level. If, if I were to describe how the body is involved in the divine levels, in the uh, subtle fabric of creation, and, and actually sits as the diamond in the ocean of unboundedness, if I were to describe that process to you, then the body would be central to that experience. You want to describe that to me, or you want to like save that for another time? <laughs> <laughs> We're saving a lot here. We are, yeah. I'll go a little more into it. This is my experience, and this has started in the last 10 years. So we're getting closer and closer to the present day. For years, I looked for the I, too, you know, starting 20, 30 years ago. What is this I? You know, I had all this glorious experience. I had this absolute knowingness that would well up all the time. Uh, What's the individual in this? Is he gone forever now? Is it gone, disappeared? And then gradually over the last 15, 20 years, my senses became active in the process of these subtler levels. I could literally see the absolute. I mean, hear it, see it. When my senses became active in that experience, the body became active in that experience. Locations of the body became active in that experience. And I know that's maybe hard to swallow, but that's how I I'm not sure people will understand what you mean by it, actually. They not, won't. Not that they can't swallow it, but they'll say, well, what, is, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, let's stay with the senses for a moment. The okay. senses are grounded in the physiology. There's eyeballs, ears, <laughs> nose, mouth. Um, they have locations in the body. And, and there's these senses that are functioning multi-directionally, inside, outside, 
nothing in between, all one continuum. Seeing the self, seeing the knower, every sense is a channel of knowledge, is a channel of knowingness, is a channel of uh, objective reality, subjective reality, and absolute reality. And when the senses are functioning like that, these senses, as if, locate themselves in a body, in a physiology. So, yes. Now, having said that, there's, there's a subtle physiology, there's a divine physiology, and there's an absolute physiology. We can, we can cover those things. But they're bodies. They're individuals. They're individual bodies. They're are they like bodies. Russian dolls, where they're, you know, they're really not separate individual bodies, but they're you know, subtler levels contained within... They're exactly the same shape as this body. So, and, and so what were they again? The celestial and absolute? in just normal spiritual circles, you know, there's uh, astral, astral body causal, and causal, yeah. yes. I would add the absolute body as well. Mm. So, yeah, those bodies have longer life, longer life, and then the and then absolute life. Interesting. Okay, well, that's another thing to unpack. We've got a lot of yeah. unpacking to do. Some people are, are fond of the notion of uncertainty in the sense that... Um, you know, you can never drop anchor at any point in, in your understanding or experience. We've, I know we've talked about how understanding and experience completely, continually unfold. Do you feel like you're certain of anything, or is it sort of like you're in a field of all possibilities in which, you know, you never want to collapse it down to, I am sure about X, Y, Z? No, no, quite the opposite. I'm 100%, absolutely, totally positive of everything I say. <laughs> 100%. Not even, not Must one a, iota of doubt. I'd hate to be your wife. Uh, well, on the knowledge <laughs> level, experience level, on, you know, whether, you know, daily life is another matter. Yeah, yeah. You mean all this knowledge stuff? Yes, yes. yes. And yes. yet, a lot of the things you say, if I te speak to you five years from now, you might think, well, you know, I said that then, but now I'm, I'm going to say I this. don't care. I had the same sense five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Just the rheostat is clear. I had the same knowledge. Yeah. But it wasn't as uh, detailed. So you haven't, like, radically revised anything. If I, and, you and, and you and I had conversations 10 years ago. You, ha you haven't sort of said, forget that, I was wrong. It's more like you're getting into just the finer details of things, which you were also totally confident about then. I've never been wrong since birth about knowledge. Knowledge stuff. Knowledge stuff. That's going to raise a few hackles. I imagine well, let, get... let the hackles rise. My own are rising, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm getting ready for the hackles. I mean, I don't, you don't come across... The hecklers. As, you don't come across as a dogmatic person. You no, I'm not. You're, you're not I, I, I want to be open. You're just saying that there's a kind of a, an inner certainty inner... To, to these kinds of things. Yes, there is. You're not speculative. It's not speculation. And as you said earlier, if it's not your experience, you don't say it. If, observation. And if you're saying it, it's your experience, or you wouldn't be saying it. Observation. Okay, good enough. I think we're going to wrap this one up. There's so many more things we could talk about, but we've planted you know, dozens of seeds throughout this conversation that we can water and sprout in, in future conversations. Well, you know, I, I was a little bit nervous about this. I'm, I'm very yeah, pleased. It took me four years to talk into uh, Well, yeah, four years is short for me, you know. <laughs> but I'm pleased you've had me on here, and I'm looking forward to another session. Yeah. And uh, I am happy to, you know, if people ask me serious questions about what I'm talking about, I'm no good at... Um, Should I know, marry Sally Jane or... No, nothing. And nor can I deal with uh, issues. I'm no good. Right. But I, 
I do you mean have like some, psychological issues. Yeah, I have no, yeah. I've got no, you know, ability there. But yeah. I, the only ability I have is that I can observe what I experience and I can speak it. Yeah. That's all. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, Harry hasn't had a website, hasn't written a book and all that, but uh, as we speak, a website is being developed and it should be up by the time this interview is published, which is just, you know, a few days from now. Uh, and it, it, I think it's going to be harryalto.com, and that's spelled H-A-R-R-I-A-A-L-T-O.com. So it'll be very rudimentary to begin with, but people can go there, and there'll be some kind of a contact thing. And I'll post some experience and in there for the time being. From yeah, time to time, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you contact him, if you email him, and I imagine a couple thousand people will as a result of this interview. I hope not. <laughs> but, uh, he's probably not going to respond to 95% of them, I would guess, because you're just not going to have the time to do all those emails. You'll probably read them or somebody will. No, I will I'll, I'll read them. Yeah. Yes, I'll read them. Yes, And for if you sure. can, you'll, you'll respond to some of them. Yes, and, absolutely. And also, I think, you know, emails like that will provide us with... Um, Content, for content for another yeah. one. Yes, yeah, yes. We'll, okay. we'll note down points and kind of organize them into a nice structure. Um, I want all the advices to attack me. No problem. <laughs> you, you want them to? Yeah, I do. Okay. <laughs> Let them have it. All Let you, both all, barrels. All your neo-advices. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as Harry doing anything in person, we're talking about having... Uh, uh, Francis Bennett is planning to come to Fairfield in late May, I think around the weekend of the 28th, if that's a weekend. And Kristen Kirk, whom I interviewed about a month ago, is probably going to come also and see exactly what the two of them are going to do, whether they'll do it together. We might bring Harry into the mix, too, in some way. It's all yet to be worked out. But at least he's, Francis is going to give a weekend retreat. And whether Kristen gives the whole weekend with him or just does some healings here and comes into one meeting or what, we don't know. But Harry will also come into at least one meeting and we'll have a conversation with the three of them and we'll put it on BatGap. But if you'd like to come to Fairfield and have a visit and the retreat is very reasonably priced and you will find details on Francis's website which you can find a link to from my website on the Francis Bennett page. And maybe I'll also put it on Harry's page if he's going to speak there. What's left of Harry's arm ligaments, I'm, I'm twisting further still to uh, get him to come to the Science and Non-Duality Conference in late October out in California. So he may show up there and might even get him up on a stage. We'll see. I don't know about that, <laughs> but I'm very pleased to be here and yeah. thank you for inviting me. That's yeah. great. I'm really glad that we've finally been able to do this and I, I think people are really going to enjoy it and I hope so, we'll yeah. be doing more. Just to make a few more general, totally general comments about this interview series, it is a series, and uh, there have been 225 of them or something now. Um, you can find them all on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. They're archived both alphabetically and chronologically. There are a number of other things you'll find there. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email of new interviews. There's a uh, discussion group that crops up around each interview. There's a link to an iTunes audio podcast, so you can just listen to these in audio if you like on your iPod or iThing. And there's a donate button, and BatGap is a 501c3, uh, which means it's a nonprofit in the United States. And as donations become sufficient, I will gradually 
move into doing this full-time, hopefully. If I were doing it full-time, I'd be doing more than one interview a week. I've got 1,100 people on the waiting list. I'll be well into my 90s by the time I get to them all <laughs> if I do them one a week. And uh, more suggestions come in every day. So I'd like to make it a daily show if I could, at least four or five days a week or something. But obviously, I'd have to drop my, my ordinary day job to do that. So if you feel inclined to make a donation or if, if you are in a business or affiliated with a business or own a business that needs a tax write-off, it's a 501c3. Keep it in mind. So thanks for listening or watching, and uh, we'll see you next week with Robert Svoboda. We will see Harry again in a couple of months. Thank you. Great. It's terrific. Thanks. Okay. Good.